Hey, deserving listeners, I thought I would answer patron emails. Let's get to the first email here. Anonymous patron writes, can you tell us about the psychology workings of stubbornness, psychological workings of stubbornness and stubborn behavior? I identify stubbornness as a person's refusal or inability to change or assess their own actions even after repeated consequences for their actions. In other words, people who can't or won't change even when it's making their lives worse. What causes people to act this way? Why can't people change when it could help their lives? To clarify, this is separate from addiction. I mean stubborn behavior in general. End of email. So I could talk a lot about this, but uh, one conceptualization that I have found to be accurate is that when some people are young, they are not allowed to assert themselves. So think about a child who has you know the normal range of emotions and a desire for power, and you have one or both parents who are either abusive when the child asserts themselves or emotionally coercive or even overprotective. And the child at the age of three or four learns that they cannot safely express themselves in a spontaneous way. Uh, especially when it comes to asserting their own power, expressing their own wants. You know, like, I don't want to take a nap right now, or I don't want to eat that right now, or I don't want to do my chores, or whatever it is that, you know, I guess it'd be weird if a four-year-old had a chore, but I guess picking up their toys or something. You know, there are normal things that kids will want to assert their power over, and if there's some complication there, uh, the child learns that they can't assert themselves, but on the inside, they still desire power, as anyone would. And as an adult, when you tell them to do something, they will be a, very stubborn to the point of personality disorder. And the personality disorders involved in this are dependent personality or passive-aggressive personality. Listen to my deep dives on passive-aggressive in particular for more information on that. But essentially what happens is the adult develops early in, you know, when they're a child, they develop this complex regarding their own power and other people such that they will actually uh, preemptively depower themselves in relationships because they learned to do that because it, the assumption was always correct. When they were six years old, it was correct to believe that depowering yourself was correct because the situation was such that your parents or whoever was going to depower you. But then as an adult, you retain that assumption that other people are going to depower you. And even though other people aren't necessarily going to do that to you. And you will lower your own power in a relationship, but you deeply resent it and you're very angry about it. But again, you can't assert that anger because you're going to be punished. So you drive that anger underground and it sneaks out in other ways, i.e. stubbornness. All right, let's go on to another email. This next email is from anonymous patron. She writes, what's your advice on approaching and developing a romantic relationship with a man with avoidant attachment? I am a woman with probably a good percentage of secure attachment sprinkled with some preoccupied, maybe 60-40, end of email. Okay, so you have a half-secure, half-preoccupied woman wanting to approach a relationship with an avoidant man. Well, it's hard to know because just knowing that you're half-secure, half-preoccupied and 
your partner is avoidant doesn't tell me much beyond attachment, right? There's so many other factors that play into whether or not a relationship works well. But generally speaking, what I might say is with your preoccupied tendencies and his avoidant tendencies, the the common dynamic that develops over time is a pursuer distancer where you are pursuing as the preoccupied person and he is avoiding and distancing. And that can become a vicious cycle in that the more you pursue, the more he distances, the more he distances, the more you pursue. And the reason why he distances is because the pursuing might actually be – you might be critical of him, right? You might be saying, you're always so distant from me. You're, you're never uh, – you never respond to me, you know, instead of – so maybe that's one piece of advice is as you pursue – Ask in a way that doesn't make him feel accused because avoidant people can often have a huge complex regarding guilt and, and shame. And when they feel guilt, when they feel ashamed, when they feel like they've let someone down, they will crawl even further inward and will avoid relationships even further. Because, I mean, one of the paths to avoidant is – you know, so you're three, four years old, you're being emotionally neglected somehow, and you develop avoidant attachment. Then as like a 10-year-old or a 15-year-old or a 25-year-old, you continue to avoid and a lot of people react to you with a lot of anger. And they'll say like, you're so cold and you're, you're, you don't, you're not nice enough. You don't notice my feelings enough. And the avoidant person is confused by that because – they're, they're giving it their best but and they don't know they're avoidant and they're being accused of all these horrible things like they don't care. And so – and then they're and then they're rejected because of that, which is terrible to them because they were neglected growing up. And so they have a huge guilty complex about being accused of those kinds of things, of distance. And when you point it out to them, you just have to be very careful about how you do that. Do it in a way that doesn't trigger them and do it in a way that doesn't feel hurtful. So the preoccupied uh, p- position, you want to be just essentially nice about it. <laughs> uh, the other thing is to sometimes accept as the preoccupied secure person that your role might be to reach out more often. Your role can be sometimes felt as though it's, it's quite a burden um, it's not uncommon for a preoccupied avoidant re- relationship where the preoccupied person is responsible essentially or made to be responsible for like 99% of the intimacy, 99% of the together activities and it feels bad. It fe- the, per- you know, the preoccupied person just ends up feeling angry that they always have to initiate. And sometimes that's just kind of how it is. Other, you know, to expect the avoidant person to initiate is actually asking quite a bit. So it depends, but sometimes, at least in the beginning, just accepting that part of it might help. Um, what else could I say? Well, for you, as the preoccupied person, uh, you say you're, you know, half half uh, secure, half preoccupied. The you're going to be triggered as he distances and it's going to hurt and you're going to have some pretty big feelings around that. And so just trying to 
mitigate those feelings in a way that is good for you, in a way that is functional for you. Uh, having other people to talk to about it, having a way of looking at it for yourself. But of course, there's a lot of other things I could say, but let's, all, let's try to rifle through as many emails as possible. Next email. All right, this next email is from patron Emily. She writes, I was wondering if you could speak about pursuing psychology as a career coming from a non-traditional bachelor's degree. I'm 28 years old and I got a BFA. I am wondering if you could give any advice on becoming a great candidate from a different background than psychology. Do you have any application tips? Should I look into leaving my current job and finding one more relevant to psychology? Books to read up on. Should Would a school even accept a candidate with no experience like myself? End of email. So I, I'm going to answer these questions based on my own experience. I do not know what all the schools are doing around the country and particularly around the world. But the things that I know about, I know about uh, getting a mass, you know, becoming a marriage and family therapist, becoming a licensed professional counselor or mental health counselor, becoming a psychologist, becoming a social worker. I know about those degrees and those processes pretty well in the United States. So to answer your question, your last one I'll answer first, you know, would a school even accept a candidate with no experience like myself? Yes, 99% of the applicants into master's and doctoral programs that are clinical. So, you know, so I, this, I'm going to be answering these questions for clinical degrees, not for like research-oriented degrees. For instance, the psychology, uh, you know, doctoral degree that you get at the University of Washington in Seattle is mainly a research degree. I, I don't know if they have any clinical component. Maybe they do now. But but Antioch University, we don't have any research degrees. We have only clinical degrees. Anyway, so I'm only going to answer for clinical degrees because that's easier for me to answer. <laughs> Would a school even accept a candidate with no experience like yourself, Emily? Yes. 99% of the applicants who apply to the clinical programs have no experience. Uh, uh, it's you know very common. The biggest reason is it's really hard to get experience in psychology without a degree. <laughs> so we understand that. Uh, like in my program, Marriage and Family Therapy, uh, most of the candidates have various different degrees. I applied to the Marriage and Family Therapy program at Antioch University Seattle with a business degree. And I had taken Psych 101 and barely paid attention. In fact, side note, <laughs> it was – so I went to college um, – well, going back to high school. In high school, I got pretty good grades and people would talk about how hard college was and I was really worried about college. I got to college and I worked, you know, pretty hard in my first quarter, but not severely hard. And I was taking some pretty difficult classes. I was taking like pre-med or pre-med or uh, pre-engineering um, uh, chemistry and physics and math. And I got a 4.0 <laughs> at the University of Washington, which, you know, is was not easy. But I was like, wait, I mean – college is maybe just a little bit harder than high school, I found. And so the second quarter, I decided to experiment and see like, okay, I found I, I, I discovered what working hard results in results in a 4.0. What happens if I don't work at all? <laughs> so my, you know, because I wanted to get the low range. And then I after that experiment, I, you know, would know, okay, well, what sort of grade point is sort of optimal. I had this this uh, equation in my head of 
So I could get a 4.0 at the University of Washington if I wanted to, uh, but I would have to sacrifice something. And what I'd be sacrificing is fun, <laughs> socializing, partying, doing things. Uh, and so I, there was this equation in my head of like, okay, I have four years to, at college and, you know, I lived in a fraternity. And so, you know, there was all the kind of stuff going on. And I, I said, okay, there, I, I can't have one without the other. So I could get a 4.0 and say get like, uh, you know, 10 party points. <laughs> or I could get a, a 3.0 and get 50 party points, if you know what I'm saying. Anyway, so I needed to experiment to see what was the low end. Because if the low end was like flunking all my classes, then obviously I needed to put in close to the maximum amount of effort to just pass classes. Anyway. So my second quarter, I took Psych 101, and that course was – it was in the biggest uh, classroom at University of Washington. Meany, is it? No, not Meany. Anyway, I can't remember the name. But it, it's like 1,000 students in the class. And I didn't go to a single class. And all I did – I didn't even buy the book. I bought the lecture notes and would cram those just before the test. And the test was a Scantron test. There were five tests. And I even did extra credit by volunteering for a research study. And so I didn't go to class. I didn't read the book. I didn't even have the book. I just read the lecture notes, took the Scantron test, took five Scantron tests. That's all I did. That's all. The only time I ever showed up to class was to take those five Scantron tests. And I got a 2.7, which is a B minus, right? Yeah. So I got a 2.7 and I said, okay, the lowest grade that I will get in a class probably is like a 2.7 without any, without trying at all. <laughs> and so I said, all right, well, you know what? My degree of business, I don't know if I knew what I was going to do at that time, but I, I think maybe business. I said, I, I asked around and people were like, no one looks at your grade point average. It, Unless you're like planning on going to Harvard for graduate school or something, no one really cares. And I was like, well, you know what? I'd be happy with like a 3.2, you know, or a 3.3 or something. And, you know, it's respectable enough. And I would get a lot more party points out of it, which um, – so I proceeded to do that. And yes, I did. I graduated with a 3.1 and had a lot of par party points in those four years. I actually graduated early. <laughs> Um, so I got into my master's program at Antioch University, Seattle with that business degree and that one 2.7 in my psych 101 class. Anyway, so a lot of people assume that to become a clinical person, you have to have an undergrad in psychology. It's just not the case. Now, if you're going to work in research, you probably do because research is like way more um, higher. There's a lot more competition for those kinds of uh, student you know, positions, a lot more competition to get into those uh, programs. And it's just a lot more stodgy, if you will. Anyway, uh, you also ask books to read up on. Um, yeah, people ask me this. I don't know because I would just read books that interest you, honestly. There's really no book that I would think would be critical to read other than like The Gift of Therapy by Irvin Yalom or Love's, Exe Love's Executioner by Irvin Yalom. Those two books I might uh, read up on. But, you know, th there's no – you don't have to do that if you don't want to. 
You also ask, should I look into leaving my current job and finding one that's more relevant in psychology? No. I mean, if you want to, certainly. But there's not a lot of jobs that approximate what it's like to be a clinician. You know, uh, there might be some bachelor level jobs like at a community mental health agency working with kids or something that might help a little bit, but it's really a far cry from clinical work. So it's just one of the, it's just a hard job to prep for or to know about. Um, what I would do, honestly, patron Emily, as, and I tell everyone this is find a handful of people that are doing exactly what you want to do. Um, the sort of clinical work that you want to do, working with the sort of clients that you want to work with. And this might take some homework. You might actually have to make some phone calls and reach out to – you know, you might have to call like 50 therapists in your area before you find someone that is willing to talk to you. And then once you talk to them, like pick their brain for a few hours and find out how they got there, what degree they got what they would have done differently going back, what they like about their job, what they don't, and try to get a sense for what the job is actually like and make sure that it is something that you want to do. There's a lot of jobs where you can either intuit or experience for yourself, like being a high school teacher. Well, all of us know what a high school teacher does because we all went to high school, right? Most of us went to high school. But being a therapist, even if you've been in therapy, it's kind of hard to know what it's really like behind the scenes. And so I always recommend people do that. Um, there's that. You also have a question. Do you, do you have any application tips? Uh, well, I know how to apply to my program for the most part, but you know, each program is going to have a different set of criteria and different personalities who are reading the, um, you know, the applications right now, for example, in my program, we have about 15 professors and sometimes we will look at candidates completely differently. Um, we do group interviews and I will look at a applicant and I'll be like, that person is perfect. That person is like the absolute perfect Antioch student. And my colleague, my fellow professor will look at that student and hate that person and be like, I don't want that person in the program. So it's hard to know what to say. The, the things that I'll say is the things I always say to everyone, but really I'm saying what would appeal to me <laughs> if you're applying and I was the one reviewing your application. Uh, being able to write well is important. Being able to take responsibility for yourself while not going overboard. Being able to listen. Being able to talk. You know, being able to communicate in a group setting. Um, being on time, like I've, I've uh, eliminated applicants just because they were late to the uh, interview. You know, I've been like, if you're late to your interview and you don't really have a good excuse, then, you know, unless you really wow me, then, you know, because not only are you going to be a terrible student because like one out of every, I don't know, 50 students is always late to everything. They're always late to class. And it's like, that person is one, a disruption to classes. You know, my classes are like six to 10 people. So when one person's late, it's very strange. Also, to be a therapist, you got to be on time. Some of you listening right now have therapists who show up late to your sessions. That's unacceptable. It's abandoning. It's hurtful. It's, it's terrible. It's not hard to follow a schedule. Now, occasionally being late, fine, if there's an emergency. But plan your life, people. And if you want to be 
uh, in a job that by definition requires you to be punctual, then um, make sure you're punctual. <laughs> uh, just get used to that. Anyway, so you also said you, – you wrote a longer email. I didn't read the whole thing. That you were thinking about art therapy, but then you, you thought you wanted to ha- have a degree that was more more serious or more clinical. Art therapy degrees are clinical and they are serious. Uh, for example, in my program, we teach art therapists, but it's art therapy is an add-on to another degree. So you get a degree in marriage and family therapy with an add-on of art therapy, or you get a degree in clinical mental health counseling with an add-on of drama therapy, or you get a degree in social work with an add-on of sex therapy, that kind of thing. So art therapy is an add-on to an already clinical degree. So the art therapists that graduate from our program, many of whom I will teach in my classes because they're part of the marriage and family therapy program, uh, are very good marriage and family therapists, very competent, very clinical, but they have this additional uh, training in art therapy. Now, there is something to be said about making sure that you don't just go into art therapy just because you're good with art. Because art therapy, if you do those kinds of programs, a lot of your learning and your intervention options are centered around art, which you know can be great. But it's also – you also kind of miss out on just general clinical work, you know, just more – more generally uh, applicable, if you will. The last thing I'll say is that a lot of people get real worried about applying to these programs. Most of clinical programs, whether it's mental health counseling, marriage and family therapy, social work, or uh, becoming a psychologist, they're not hard to get into. These are not, you know, super competitive programs to get into. There's definitely a threshold in my program. We routinely turn away, I don't know, maybe about a, a third to a half of the people that we interview, which, you know, sucks. But it's not hard to get into these sorts of – particularly other kinds of programs. Antioch, our program is pretty competitive, but there are some programs out there that I'm guessing they don't turn away a single applicant. So it's not hard to get into these programs is, is the point. So. I wouldn't worry too much. (laughs) Anyway, let's go on to another email. All right, this next email is from Anonymous Patron. She writes, My father has narcissistic personality, and listening to your explanation of the disorder has helped me better understand his actions. How does having a parent who suffers from narcissistic personality typically affect children? He basically ignored me and my brother. If he did spend time with us, he did not care about our wants or needs. It was all about him and what he wanted. He also struggled with substance abuse. End of email. Well, it, it, I, you know, there are so many different things I could say, but the fundamental, as you describe, is when you have a narcissistic parent, there are generally two messages that you – or sort of two modes that you get into with narcissistic parents. One is as which they're ignoring you or they're not paying attention to your needs. And so you are being deprived of love and attunement and attention. So there's that action. The other action is narcissistic people can get angry pretty easily uh, and, um, and often will develop su- substance abuse problems. So maybe there's three kind of themes is dealing with a, uh, a parent who is struggling with addiction a parent who is ignoring your needs, and a parent who has problems with anger. So you didn't mention anger, but you did mention substance abuse, and 
being emotionally neglecting. And so you ask, like, you know, how how does it affect the children? Well, the child has to cope with that somehow. And there are a number of different defenses of which I talk about all the time, you know, almost in every episode. There's some form of defense that we talk about, whether it's developing narcissism yourself, developing borderline yourself, developing any number of other personality disorders, developing preoccupied attachment or avoidant attachment, uh, disorganized attachment. There's, there's always some – there's always some need to develop a maladaptive coping to a maladaptive situation. So I could list, you know, you could become depressed because you just have to give up. You could become anxious because you were made to feel alone. You know, there's just a variety of different things that can happen. The things that I've seen at the top of my head, uh, you know, I, I have certain prototypical families that I think about in my clinical work where there was a narcissistic parent. And the kids buried their emotions a lot of times and had to grow up faster than other kids did. And that has all all sorts of consequences. Sometimes they can be sort of too responsible and they can they can become overfunctioners sometimes. But I don't know if that's true for all children of narcissistic parents. Anyway, let's go on to another email. All right. This next email is from listener Hadiza from Toulouse, France. They write, is there a connection between the number of sexual partners you've had and your ability to be faithful in a relationship? If not, do you understand where this idea could come from? End of email. So is there a connection between the number of past sexual partners you've had and your ability to be faithful in a relationship? No. Uh, research does not find a connection. I'm guessing there might be a slight association there, but I would definitely not uh, say it's a sound conclusion to draw of like, oh, well, they've had sex with 50 people in the past, which is more than I've had, and therefore they're more likely to cheat than me. Yeah, that there's there's no reason to believe that. I think a better question to be ask is how have you ever cheated before? <laughs> because I would guess I would have to look at the research that if you've cheated before, then you have a greater chance of cheating. Having said that, cheating, it, depending on how you define it, most people, if not everyone, participates at least in minor infidelities at some point in their life. So it's not uncommon. Anyway, you ask, if not, do you understand where the idea could come from? Well, yeah. I mean, we tend to stigmatize people who have sex a lot, uh, particularly women, but men too, as you know, sluts and as people with no morals, which is ridiculous. You can have sex every day with a new person, and you could go to a bar and just meet a random person, have sex with that person. You could do that for five years straight, and there is nothing wrong with your personality or behavior if that's what you want to do. Now, given our culture – in all likelihood, if someone is doing that, there is something that they're suffering from because it is strange behavior. But there's nothing wrong with it. Nothing wrong with having sex with as many people as you want to have sex with. There are many people that I've treated who uh, lived in the polyamory community or the swing, you know, the open relationship community or in BDSM community, and will have uh, sexual encounters with all sorts of people. And there's, you know, there's, 
there's nothing wrong with that. And it, there's no ill effect. It, it's just a matter of do you know what you want and are you sure that you want that and are you asserting that? Are, are you being safe and are, is everything consensual? And so, you know, we need to stop stigmatizing sex and we still do. Uh, it, it's ridiculous <laughs> that we still do. But, um, but there you go. Anyway, let's go on to another email. All right. This next email is from Patron Mel. They write, I was wondering what your view is with people falling back in love with their partners after growing very emotionally detached. Is it possible to get those feelings of affection back, affection back after a period of intense fighting and growing anger, sometimes to the point of hate, so that you feel extremely disconnected from them and even after seemingly making up? Are there signs which suggest whether this is or is not possible? End of email. So basically this person is saying, is it, uh, is it possible or what's going on when you are in a relationship, you're in love, and then over time you learn to hate that person? Can you fall back in love and what's going on there? Yeah, uh, you know, absolutely. And I've seen that before in the macro and the micro. So in the micro, I see it a lot where I will be with a couple and they will come to me and say, we're done. Our relationship is over. I hate this person. And then we'll work on things. And by the end of the session, they're back in love. <laughs> uh, no joke. I'm not even exaggerating with that at all. So that's on the micro. And on the, on the macro, I've seen that as well where uh, you know, a common example is Someone cheats on someone and it's a massive blow to the person being cheated on and the cheated on partner will hate the cheating partner, will resent them, will not even want to look at them, will not want to touch them or you know, kiss them or anything, repulsed by them. We recover from the infidelity over the past – over the course of a couple of years and they fall back in love. So yeah, you know. It's, it's humans. It's the heart. It's, it's variable. Let's go on to another email. All right. This next email is from patron Jasmine. She writes, I have a six-year relationship going strong. I've had a lot of trauma and maladaptive behaviors in my life, whereas my boyfriend is very well adjusted. About a month ago, my boyfriend told me that one of our previous professors had passed by him and said, you are in an abusive relationship. Come talk to me at my office. My boyfriend never went and only recently told me about this conversation. I feel very hurt that it seems the professor was trying to help my boyfriend while neglecting to help me, which is a common pattern in my childhood. I am currently deciding to email this professor as I am so curious as to his intentions and perspective. Should I email the professor? End of email. Okay. So first of all, uh, to answer your, your question – should you email the professor? Sure, if you want to. I, I say, you know, you're the customer. This is what I'm always telling my students is, look, students, you're the customer. You're paying for my uh, mortgage, <laughs> you know. You, your tuition that you, you're spending a lot of money is directly paying my salary. So in the same way that uh, if, if a fly is in your soup, you should call the waiter over and say there's a fly in my soup – when you have a question that you want to ask your professor, you have a right to ask that question and your professor should answer those questions because they owe you. You've paid them a lot of money for their job. Um, 
uh, it drives me crazy when I get this very frequent attitude from students where they feel like they have to beg me to ask a question. Like, you know, they'll email me and they'll be like, I'm so sorry. I'm sure you're really busy, but I really want to ask you a question. I'll be, and I'll, I'll always end the, I'll answer the question. Then I always end it. By the way, never apologize for, never apologize for asking a professor a question. You're paying a lot of money for your degree. And I literally get paid to answer your emails. So don't ever apologize (laughs) in the same way that you would never apologize to, uh, you know, Let's say you order a pizza uh, from Domino's, and three days later the pizza hasn't arrived, and you don't want to uh, you don't want to call Domino's and say, you know what, I'm really sorry, but I did buy a pizza and it hasn't arrived yet. It's been three days. You don't apologize. You're like, hey, I ordered a pizza three days ago. So that's you know, treat professors as they should be treated, which is that way. <laughs> they are the service provider. They are not gods. Anyway. Um, so the other thing I'll just say, you're not really asking about this, is uh, – I mean, well, to answer your question also, is it wise to email your professor? I don't know. I don't know what – you know. what's your goal? What do you think the professor is going to say? Um, I, I don't know. You know I, I suppose it would be interesting if you could ask him, like, why do you think I'm an abusive partner? Because I would certainly like to learn what to change because if I am being abusive, then I want to change that. Anyway, um, but the larger question is, are you an abusive partner? And I don't know that obviously. I'd have to assess. But it's it's not uncommon for – it depends on what we mean by abusive, right? There's a lot of different thresholds. But there's a fair amount of people with backgrounds like yours, trauma and, and you know, a pattern of maladaptive behaviors – who can be what we might call abusive in relationships. And it's a hard pill to swallow. And I've, I've talked with people about this. I've talked with clients whom I've had very good relationships with uh, before revealing this that they are an abusive person. They are, they are abusing their spouse and they've been doing it for quite some time. Their attitudes, their anger, their, enti- their feelings of entitlement to their anger – their perspective on their um, level of power in their relationship, even though they also care about their partner and they have empathy. There's a lot of reasons why people become abusive. One is is you're flooded frequently with emotions and you're freaking out. Another is that you were modeled abusive behavior growing up and it just seems natural. Another is that you're just so um, defensive Meaning, you have so many, def, you know, uh, defense mechanisms at play that it's hard for you to see straight in situations, and so there's just a lot of reasons why that could happen. Um, now, there's also, I'll also say that there's a fair amount of people upon hearing very little information will say you're being abused, you know, and your professor could be one of those people. Your professor, I don't know how much your professor knows about your situation, but. It's not uncommon for me to hear about someone that said, you know, I I just – someone – I talked for a few minutes with someone and they said, I'm in an abusive relationship and I I just kind of roll my eyes because – I mean unless it's really obvious like your partner is beating you every day, then it's it's hard to know what's really happening because you're only hearing one side of the story, you know. Uh, And this actually happens to a lot of individual therapists because they're not trained to work – relationally and they will have an individual client in their office and that person is giving their side of the story 
And if you just believe every word that your client is telling you, then it can look as though they're in an abusive relationship. Whereas if you actually met with both of them, you would learn that, oh, there's two sides of this story here. Now, this isn't to say that some people aren't being abused, and this isn't to say that individual counselors can't detect can't detect that. Most of them can. But I'm just saying the little bit you told me about the story of like your boyfriend told you that one of your previous professors just passed by him and said, by the way, you're in an abusive relationship. You, you should come talk with me. Um, yeah, I would just take that with a grain of salt. Is you know, there's a lot of people throwing those words around, but you know, it, it is something to look into, and obviously, go to therapy for. All right, let's go on to another email. But first, let's take a break. All right, we're back from the break. This next email is from Patron Lacey from Seattle. She writes. After listening to your deep dive on attachment theory, I wondered if you have any thoughts or information on people using God as a secure attachment figure. End of email. Yeah, absolutely. It's not often talked about, but it absolutely uh, is something that people should think about. Um, As, you know, there's various different experiences in different religions and different humans, but there are many people who will feel as though God is watching them. God is there. God hears their prayers. God helps them when they're uh, in need. God is is watching out for their best interests. God will be there a- after death. God is watching over their family members. And so this sense of safety and being attuned to definitely can enhance your attachment sense and can definitely help to not only establish secure attachment but also earn security. So uh, for therapists out there, you want to think about that. In the same way that you might talk with your clients about their support system, you want to talk about their relationship with God if they have a relationship because that relationship very much can play a role in one's ongoing support needs. All right, let's go on to another email. All right, this next email is from patron Marianne from Milwaukee. She writes, I would like to hear your point of view about the nice narcissist. This person always has to be seen by everyone as being the nice guy. Is this covert narcissism? End of email. Uh, Well, I don't know because the the term narcissist is thrown around a lot on the internet these days. And so – I don't I'm I don't really know what that means in a lot of people's minds. But can you have someone suffering from narcissistic personality, uh, either the, the disorder or uh, personality spectrum, who also has a need to be seen as nice in that they use a lot of trickery and impression management uh, mechanisms to make sure that everyone sees them as the nice guy? Absolutely. If when you need narcissistic supply, one of the ways that you might be able to get that is through everyone seeing you as the nice guy. So how do we determine the difference between real altruism, real niceness, and fake narcissistic niceness? Well, fake narcissistic niceness is probably not going to be perceived as actually being nice, one. Two, Narcissistic niceness comes from a place of desperation, not from a place of of balanced, um, you know, wisdom or balanced humanity. I guess I should say. So, uh, but people who suffer from narcissistic uh, spectrum, uh, 
and they engage in a lot of nice behavior, it might be really hard to detect it because they've learned to make sure that people don't see them as being fake because they're trying to garner narcissistic supply from everyone for being the nice guy. Now, you ask the question, you know, is this covert narcissism? It certainly can be. Uh, but, you know, covert narcissism, the, the problem with all the covert and malignant and all those labels is that it somehow implies like these subgroups are somehow very easy to detect. The thing here is that when you are mistreated growing up, you develop a defense of narcissism meaning that you develop a defense against deep inferiority, deep humiliation, deep loneliness. You develop a defense by saying, you know what? I'm superior to everyone. I don't need other people. I don't, I'm better than other people. Uh, other people can go to hell if, as for all I care. If someone insults me or criticizes me, um, you know, I'll make sure that they understand that they're wrong. But underneath it all is, is deep, deep pain deep pain, deep suffering. So when we talk about covert narcissism, I feel like sometimes people forget that fact that underneath covert narcissism is deep suffering and underneath grandiose narcissism is deep suffering. And so when you understand that and you focus on that, then everything kind of falls into place. All the desperate eff efforts to make sure everyone understands that they're superior and awesome or nice starts to make a lot more sense and and the the desperation and the fakeness and the you know someone who has narcissistic personality spectrum of a significant degree who engages in the nice guy routine well when you don't see him as the nice guy then there will be consequences you know he won't be so nice anymore is the thing <laughs> anyway let's go on to another email all right this next email is from patron kelly from florida she writes I was wondering if you could explain the gray rock method for dealing with abusive relationships. I am currently in an, emo an emotionally abusive relationship and was thinking about trying the gray rock method. I try to do this in a calm and non-confrontational way. Uh, sorry, I sort of skipped by. Basically, she talks about how she tries to confront him on certain things, tries to draw boundaries. And she, she says, I tried to do it in, in a calm, non-confrontational way, but he is never receptive to my attempts to communicate with him, and he will either shut the conversation down or he will become irate with me. He expresses this anger by dramatically sulking and being extremely passive-aggressive, sometimes for hours. I used to basically grovel and apologize in order to keep the peace, but I've recently come to think I should just ignore these blow-ups and use the gray rock method. Does this work? What are other techniques that can help? How can I keep the peace without sacrificing my emotional needs? I'm too scared to leave at this time, but I don't want to live like this forever. End of email. Well, so to excuse the pun, you're caught between a rock and a hard place because your options available to you are the one that you're doing. Well, there's, there's three options I'm guessing available to you that aren't great. One is, is that you uh, are irate with him and then he becomes irate with you and you, you don't get anywhere. The other one is to do what you're trying to do now, which is you're trying to be very nice and calm as you point out your boundaries, which you deserve, and he uh, punishes you with dramatic anger and, and you know being passive-aggressive. So that's no good. 
And then your third option that you're considering is the gray rock method. For those who don't know, when you have someone with uh, emotional issues, shall we say, relational traumas that result in them targeting you with their anger, one of the techniques you know that works, and I have absolutely found this to work, is called the gray rock method in that you become a gray rock, meaning that you become so boring to the abusive person that they just ignore you. I learned this technique decades ago with people in my personal life because it, I'm a nice person and I'm a pleaser. And so when I was around abusive people, I would always try to please them. I'd always lie awake at night figuring, okay, how do I get them to calm down if we could just sort of talk this out? And over time, I learned that doesn't work because unless you have the power to sort of drag them into therapy or something, uh, by engaging with them, it just continues the pattern. So let me explain one particular pattern. And I, I'm going to use borderline, but I know a lot of listeners diagnose themselves or have been diagnosed with borderline. So I'm going to be careful as I talk about this. So I'm going to categorize two different kinds of borderline people. So we have extreme borderlines, you know, people at the extreme more extreme end of the spectrum, and they aren't aware of their condition. And then we have everyone else, people who are lower on the spectrum or people who are aware. If you're listening to this podcast and, you're, and you self-identify as having borderline personality, I'm guessing you are aware of your issues. Okay, So what I'm talking about now is an unaware, severe borderline individual. So this is someone that grew up with a lot of mistreatment growing up and has a very itchy trigger finger when it comes to fighting back and asserting their needs with other people and and can't, is very, very sensitive to criticism. And any kind of indication of abandonment is felt deeply by the person and the person will react very strongly with anger as a result. Okay. So being in a relationship with this sort of person, which kind of sounds like the person that you're with, Patron Kelly. I don't know that for sure, but it would be one hypothesis to pursue if I was working with you, is that your partner is severe, unaware, borderline person. Um, And uh, one of the things about them is that when you get angry at them, obviously, that is very rejecting of them. They get triggered and they will be very, very deeply, deeply hurt. It'll trigger all those past complex traumas when they were growing up and they will feel very justified in striking back at you emotionally. The other method is to be very nice to them, but you cannot avoid uh, stepping on a landmine. I call I call them landmines in that they're hidden explosives that are that you just can't know where you're what what's going to happen when you're walking through the field. So for example, Patron Kelly, I don't know this about you, but it's possible that uh, when you're being non-confrontational, you're being very nice and you're asserting your boundaries, just the fact that you're asserting your boundaries could could be felt as very critical to, to them, even though you're not being very critical. So let's say that you're saying, uh, let's see, what would be a common thing? You might You might say like, well... When I am working on my computer and you suddenly have something you want to talk with me about, I need you to respect the fact that I'm working on my computer and not get so upset when I don't have a half an hour to 
spare and turn to you and give you all this sort of attention. Now, for people who don't have relational traumas around abandonment, they're fine with that. It hurts a little bit, right? It hurts a little bit. It's like, oh, okay, that stings a little bit. But because I don't have relational traumas, I can return to my self-esteem and know that uh, this relationship will probably work out even though my partner is kind of rejecting me. Whereas when you have relational traumas, then you fall into the abyss even though you're drawing a very normal boundary with someone, right? Well, that's a landmine with that person and then it explodes and then the person gets very angry. So because they have those relational traumas and they're unaware of their condition and it's severe, any time you draw any kind of boundary, it, it's, it has the risk of triggering their abandonment traumas. So, so when you're nice, that doesn't necessarily reduce the blowups, right? Okay, then you become a gray rock. Well, the gray rock method really only works if you're not married to them. <laughs> you know, the gray rock times that I've done in my personal history was when you know, I wasn't – I didn't live with them or I wasn't in an intimate relationship with them. I can't imagine using the gray rock. So the gray rock method is something like when they reach out to you or they criticize you or they try – or they create drama to try to suck you in. You just don't play along. Um, and if and if they hurt your feelings, you just don't really react at all. You just – you might talk with your friends about it, like, oh, my God, my feelings are really hurt. But you don't say anything to them. You just become kind of blank. And over time, they just learn that they can't really get anything from you and they move on to someone else that they, that they do get something out of. And one of the things that people with severe, unaware borderline will do is they're, they're so desperate for secure attachment that and, – and, and it's second to second, you know, just minute by minute, they are terribly alone and afraid – um, people with borderline will sometimes report that their distress level is at like a a six at minimum, meaning when they're – the calmest moment of their life is when they're a six on the distress scale out of 10. So when you feel that alone, you will sometimes – because you want any kind of security, you will get negative security from people – because you just want something. So as an example, you might um, accuse an old friend, you know, like – so a severe unaware borderline person might be sitting at home alone and they might have just been rejected by someone. And they sort of roll through the Rolodex in their mind about who they know, you know, who, who could be a good person to reach out to. And so they text this old friend that they haven't seen in a while. And they might have had some bad moments in the past, but they're desperate. You know, the borderline person is desperate, and they, you know, they text this old friend, and so uh, you know she, she or he, let's just say he, because you're you're giving an example of a husband. So so he texts this old friend of his named John. Uh, John, you know, hey, what's going on? And John says something like, Hey, you know what? Um, I'm pretty busy these days and, you know, the pandemic and blah, blah, blah. So I don't really have time to communicate. Sorry about that. Well, to the borderline person, even though, you know, in this moment, they're so desperate for just some kind of human contact and they don't have any other alternatives, sometimes they'll resort to anger. So they might text back and say like, well, that's a fine to do. Like, you're a terrible friend. How come, how come you have time for all these other people that I see on Facebook and you don't have time for me? Okay. This is a very common um, 
severe, unaware, borderline behavior, by the way, which is sort of weird, right? Because it's like, well, if you want a friend, why are you being such an a-hole to this person? The person just said they're very busy with things in the pandemic and and they'll get back to you in a month or so, you know. And you're just being you're, – you're basically making a bad situation worse by attacking a person. Well, the thing that severe, unaware, borderline people will learn over time is that when they do that, they actually get some contact with the person. So the person – John will either say, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I didn't know you were so angry. Like, calm down. You know, and then it push it puts John in this position of trying to rectify the situation, and then and then the severe, unaware, borderline person is like, okay, finally, I have some contact with someone, and it 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 is some salve on the wound of abandonment for that day. The other thing that the person might do is they they might just get really angry and just be like. Well, the reason why I don't want to text you back is because every time I interact with you, you're constantly effing angry at me. Okay, so this situation seems bad, right? But to the severe and aware borderline person, it's actually better than being alone because in this instance, they're you know they're having a severe argument with someone, which is better than being alone. That's how bad the suffering is for the severe unaware borderline person. Their suffering is so bad that they would rather have a horrible interaction with someone than nothing at all. So this is why the gray rock method works, because no matter what sort of reaction you do, if you assert your boundaries, if you try to be nice, none of that will actually get you out of the abusive relationship because the person with uh, borderline severe unaware borderline has so many landmines that you're going to eventually you're going to step on another landmine whereas in other sorts of relationships when there's a rupture you can repair that rupture and then you'll have a a time of mutual trust like bert umberto and i have had you know a handful of different moments where we've gotten into fights a couple fights that were you know pretty big one that was really big and the fight was not a result of severe unaware borderline. It was a result of other things. And we repaired that that fight and then we were good for a while, right? But if you repair a fight with a severe unaware borderline person, it's just a matter of time before there's another there's another landmine that you step on which hurts them, which makes them very angry to cover up that hurt and they feel very justified in being very angry and abusive to you. So one of the solutions is to be the gray rock. You essentially just become you, – you, 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 one, you don't – you just don't play the game. And the, the severe unaware borderline person, they're not, they're not consciously playing this game. They're just desperately trying to get through every hour essentially. And this is why severe unaware borderline people are frequently suicidal because it's, it's such a horrible state to be in. It's a horrible, horrible emotional state. Anyway – and these people deserve good therapy, by the way. But in your personal life, it's not your responsibility to clinically solve these people's problems. And so sometimes the gray rock method works because essentially what happens is as the, um, you know, the unaware severe borderline person reach out, reaches out to you and then you, uh, you just say, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty busy. And then they attack you. And instead of attacking them back, instead of asserting your boundaries in a differentiated way, 
you just don't really respond. You're just like, oh, okay. Well, then you become a person in their life that cannot be depended on to even give them a little bit of contact, i.e., a you know conflictual negative attachment. And then you just become not really on their radar anymore. You you, you become removed from their contact list when they're in a down moment. Now, this is very sad for the unaware severe borderline person, of course, but if, if you're ever in a relationship with one of these people, you, you deserve to protect yourself. And the gray rock method is available and it often does work. I, I've used it often. <laughs> I, I won't go into it, but I, I, I can think of a handful of two people in particular that I, I, I learned about the gray rock method independent of well before I learned about this term. I think the internet sort of you know, caused this to crop up. But yeah, once, once that term came out, I was like, oh yeah, like I, I've, I learned that method a long time ago. The difference is here, Patron Kelly, is this is your partner. And I don't know if it's possible to use the gray rock method with your partner. So, you know, you say you're too scared to leave at this time and that you don't want to live like this forever. Well, call a domestic violence advocate because that's what you're going through right now. You know, go to the hotline.org, get connected. Now, it might not mean you leave right away. It doesn't usually mean that. But you deserve someone in your corner on this because you do not deserve to live in a constantly uh, abusive, between a rock and a hard place life. You deserve to be heard. You deserve to go through your day without being abused. You deserve to assert yourself without that person emotionally punishing you for days. You deserve to stand up for yourself and say, I don't want you to do that. And you deserve that person to say, oh, I'm sorry. I, I Thank you for telling me. I'll try not to do that. You deserve that. And if that seems like, uh, you know, a totally foreign land to you, uh, you know, travel to that foreign land. <laughs> a lot of people in abusive relationships, like yourself, Kelly, will almost feel like, well, this is my fate. This This is what I deserve or... This is my life now. I have kids with this man. And, you know, these are complicated situations, but at the very least, you deserve an advocate in your corner to brainstorm with. What you don't want to do is normalize the abuse. You don't want to say, well, you know, this is, this is just my life. Go on a campaign to figure out if there's a way out of this. You know, you deserve a loving, caring relationship, someone who listens to you. Someone who doesn't punish you for asserting yourself. Your description is very disturbing to me and I feel terrible for you. So please know that you deserve better than that. All right. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me out there. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do. 